You're listening to the Candare Podcast, your sidekick in the quest for knowledge, power, and entertainment. So strap yourselves in and prepare for victory! Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Candare, a tribute to comics and pop culture. I am Jeremy Colley. And I'm Jack Doherty. And we've got a good show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking all things Playboy. But when we say that, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking we're going to be talking nudes. We're going to be talking. <laughs> How can you do that on a radio show? <laughs> Not the same fact, right? <laughs> But uh, no, actually, we're not going to be talking just, uh, about nudies. We're going to be talking about uh, just Playboy in general and its impact on society and pop culture. Because, uh, I mean, what kind of a pop culture show would we be if we didn't address Playboy, right? right? Come on. <laughs> One of the biggest icons ever. So in our retro roundtable, we're going to be talking about Playboy. And then later in the episode, we're going to be joined by former model and author Patty Farmer to talk about her book, Playboy Laughs, the comedy, comedians, and cartoons of Playboy coming out August 3rd, which really uh, shines a light on like the Playboy clubs and resorts and like the cartoons, uh, the stuff people really don't know about Playboy, like uh, before the magazines, you know? Comes out today. Oh yeah, it comes out today. Yeah. We're recording this before August 3rd. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's out there now, people. And uh, I'm sure you can go to our website. We're going to have a link up. You can follow to go make your purchase or you can head over to patty-farmer.com after you... Uh, our conversation with her. But before we do that, don't forget to be checking us out on CandairPodcast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at CandairPod and on Instagram at Can underscore Air and YouTube. We have a YouTube page with that's ever growing uh, with content. We've got a Let's Play uh, video on there. The Simpsons is on there now. Is it? Mm-hmm. I haven't even seen it yet. Is it really? Not yet. It will be by then. Though. Oh, damn it's, it. It's, I broke the illusion again. <laughs> it's almost done. <laughs> I broke the illusion. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, I can't wait for that. But uh, what else is on there? We've got uh, con coverage. There's a Star Wars video, a Star Wars and the Power of Costume. Awesome video. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it is. I'm I'm enjoying it. I went back and watched it after making it. <laughs> when you're making it, you can't enjoy it. You have to no, go back and look yeah. at it as a finished piece. Like, oh, that is kind of cool. But it's about an hour-long walkthrough of the uh, Star Wars and Power of Costume exhibit at the Cincy Museum Center. So get on there, check it out. Uh, like, comment, subscribe, please. And for those of you who are going to uh, the Wizard World Convention this weekend in uh, Columbus, Ohio, August 4th, 5th, and 6th, if you have not bought your ticket yet, when you go to wizardworld.com in the promo box there, put canned air, all lowercase, no space between canned and air, and you're going to receive a cool 10% off your ticket purchase. But it's uh, good not only for Columbus, uh, the following show in Chicago, August 24th, 25th, 26th, and 27th. Uh, and then after that, in Nashville, September 8th, 9th, and 10th, if you are attending this con, use promo code CANDAIR, lowercase, no space, and you'll get that 10%. That 10% you save can get you something at the con. Yeah. <laughs> something small, maybe, but yeah. <laughs> every little bit helps, right? <laughs> All right. Well, with that behind us, let's just kick it off with this week's Retro Roundtable. Do it. Do it! Come on! I'm here! Come on! Do it now! Oh my god! It's so pretty! Y- 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 with Playboy. I only read it for the articles. <laughs> I knew that was coming somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely that book that, uh, I mean... 
we, we can't dance around the obvious. We have to at least address why we started reading Playboy yeah. back when we were young, impressionable boys to get our first glimpse. Before the internet. Right. <laughs> but our first glimpse of a, of a naked woman. Mm-hmm. I, I hate sitting here saying this on the air. It's kind of embarrassing, but... These guys are pigs. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we're not trying to talk in a demeaning way or anything. No. We're just, uh, yeah. But um, I just remember, like, the first time you, like, have one in your hand, like, how, like bad you felt like oh, oh yeah god i can get oh, so yeah. much trouble just for holding this <laughs> and here i am holding it my friends found one laying outside in the woods when we were kids i don't know why it was oh, out there man but that it, is one you do not want to pick up <laughs> <laughs> but when you again when you're young yeah. and there's no internet gotta make do so we tore out the pages and each we divvied them all up and had our own special <laughs> hiding places that <laughs> any friends that come over look what i got Oh, man. I had friends like that. I never had a uh, stash of Playboys that I showed off to my friends when I was younger, but I knew friends that had them. Yeah, I had a, yeah, a friend that had the, the nasty other two. The oh, dirty, yeah. The uh, dirty other two. But. Well, that's a that's a good thing to bring up in the uh, point of, uh, you know, talking about what makes Playboy more than just a nudie mag. You know, like Penthouse and The Hustler. Those are mm-hmm. kind of gross books. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, man, I, don't, I can't say I've ever actually sat down and like flipped one open, but I know they're they're a bit more risque. They, they're not pulling any punches. I mean, they're just... Yeah. They're Playboy, showing it all. you felt bad. The other ones felt dirty when you were <laughs> I think Playboy showed their women in a much more dignified light. Yes. Though, you know, other than just sitting there doing these explicit sexual mm-hmm. positions or whatever. but uh, Tasteful. More tasteful. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So um, More of the art route instead of the shock value. Right. Right. And you, you joke earlier about the articles, and there really were some uh, good articles in yeah. there. You know, you, you you couldn't help but look at them, and funny ones, too. I, mm-hmm. I mean, wasn't there like a, like a Dear Playboy kind of thing, like where people would write in and tell uh, the risque stories or yeah. happenings? And so, it's been so long, uh, I can't yeah, remember. But um, one thing I do remember was, uh, I don't know if they were doing it from the very beginning, but there was a uh, panel in each magazine where they would get a celebrity, and uh, they did like a 20-question Mm-hmm. Panel and that was always so interesting because it, it was you, it was a more candid like interview feel rather than uh, I guess say <laughs> kind of interviews we do like yeah. what was <laughs> it like to do this or I don't know not to bash myself there but the hey. cartoons were always the best part some of the best parts yeah me. there were yeah those were fun and we uh, when we talked with Patty a little bit later uh, we addressed that but the the cartoons. It was different than just picking up your normal newspaper and seeing, you know, the comics in there. They they had much more work put into them, mm-hmm. I guess. Like, they're very Norman Rockwell-looking things. Very, uh, very much works of art. And they're mostly one-panel cartoons, either. Yeah, I don't... Uh, there was one with, like... And I don't remember what it was called, but it was, like, this little kind of Mutt and Jeff-looking guy with, a like, a big bulbous nose and a mustache. Bert something? Or... I don't, I don't remember. remember. But, uh... <laughs> those were funny. Those were typically, like, little three-panel three strips mm. or something. But other than that, yeah, it was, like, the uh, single family circus style, you know, yeah, one yep. little comic. There, <laughs> that or the far side, kind of. Right. Or just one-liner that yeah, made exactly. it crack up. Now, what about, uh, you know, we talked again later with Patty about the uh, the image that Playboy had, the, how'd you word it, the gentleman Playboy image mm-hmm. in itself that Playboy helped 
coin, uh, one thing we should uh, mention is how that's been influential on our pop culture and uh, society. And uh, one thing we were talking about earlier would, would be kind of like, uh, and I, we, I could be wrong about this, but like the Ocean's Eleven kind of crew or like those crooner kind of crews. Mm-hmm. Would that image, well, it probably exists, but would it be as prominent or as uh, impactful as it is without Playboy behind it? I don't think so. It'd be more almost like a gangster look. I mean, with a bunch of guys in suits, like the Rat Pack. They're just a... Right. You know what I mean? Not like, I don't know, like mob-type gangster. A bunch of guys getting together, hooting and hollering. These guys right. are just mostly going out having fun. Right. More of a like a, uh, like a James Bond archetype, you know yeah. what I mean? And I think uh, one thing we didn't talk about with Patty, but I think she says that there's even in one of the Bond movies, he opens his wallet and next to his license to kill is a Playboy <laughs> club, uh, club card. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. One thing that just sprang to mind about Playboy is if you remember, uh, every cover had a kind of like Where's Waldo hidden tiny little bunny head that you had to find. Well, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah I had too. But uh, I think what I'm going to do for this episode is hide a little bunny head in our cover art. So that'll be something <laughs> for our listeners to go find. If you're listening on iTunes, you probably are just seeing our default cover art. But if you either go to Twitter or on our website, you can uh, see the... I make custom cover arts for each episode, so you'll be able to see the Playboy cover art and find that little bunny. Let us know where it is. What else you got, Jack? One thing I found out was since Playboy was like the first of its kind to do that kind of thing, Uh even with like the articles and the pictures, that it paved the way for the Cosmo magazine that kind of started after it. Yep. And that's then after Cosmo started, that's when the nudie of uh, Burt Reynolds centerfold showed up. <laughs> oh, the one Jake has on his wall right now. Yeah, you know. <laughs> trying to model himself after it every day. Right. <laughs> one thing I'm uh, curious about, uh, okay, you mentioned uh, Burt Reynolds being nude, and that makes me wonder. You know, Playboy uh, nowadays, the magazine, has uh, discontinued doing any nudies at all mm-hmm. and is uh, more of what I've heard is more of like a maxim that's kind of what field, I take it, yeah. I which I would be totally down for. Because mm-hmm. Maxim was a, or is, is it around still? I believe it is. FHM was just pretty F- much the same H- thing, but yeah. that one, that one's not around anymore, I'm pretty no, sure. No, that one is gone. Those were great, great magazines. <laughs> Thank you for pulling that picture. <laughs> There's <out>. Burt Reynolds. <laughs> I hated to see that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yesterday, before, uh, when I was doing research for this show, I thought I'm going to try to go out and pick up one of these new Playboys to see what you know what it, what it's become but i couldn't find one anywhere you know it's funny because with the internet now i think the internet has not only hurt playboy and other magazine companies mm-hmm. but um it's hard to even find a magazine rack like in a gas station or any anything anymore yeah they used to always be back behind with all the cigarettes and stuff but not so much anymore no yeah. well, you know i can think of like a handful of gas stations even like within the past year it feels that i visited that have uh, all gotten rid of their magazine racks that- even like pharmacies walgreens cvs they have like all the gun magazines and all the other magazines but there was because they always had them in the plastic bags way up high I didn't even think it to try a drugstore. Yeah, I, I just thought of it just now. <laughs> Damn that. it! But yeah, I, I still I don't even think they're they have them in there because I can't even think of seeing <laughs> that I've seen one. Or a family store that does not promote Playboy. Yeah. Here's a gun magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Guns and ammo. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> well, we're in Ohio. I always wanted to. Uh, 
go to the Playboy Mansion. Yes. And I hope I don't sound skeezy in saying that because, I mean, I'm not... It's not like, oh, I want to go and just see naked women running around because I don't think it was even really that. I don't think it was ever anything. It was the bunnies were just women that were dressed in... Yeah, the same kind of bunnies... Small clothes with ears and tails. Right, the same kind of bunnies that that were uh, in the clubs and whatnot. Yeah, it wasn't like a big sex party. It was... No, yeah. A place to hang out. Just a classy place to, like, play some cards or Mm -hmm. just hang out, watch a movie. Um, But I've, I've seen some pictures of the inside of this place, and it's incredible in that underground pool. How is it again? There's a pool above ground outside that has, like, a mirrored wall in the bottom of it and there's another pool underground that when you're swimming you can see into the underwater of the above ground pool something like that something yeah. to that effect I so it's like a waterfall I want to say that you go into and that was the tunnel and then you'd go oh really yeah I think that's how it worked the grotto I'll have to look that up that sounds cool I don't know but um I was looking up uh, pictures online and I saw this wasn't at the Playboy Mansion but it must have been one of the uh, the big clubs somewhere uh, it looks like at the top of like a skyscraper like they have a top floor and it looks like there's a infinity pool that goes right to the edge i mean mm-hmm. you're swimming looking out over the city well, if it's the same one i wouldn't say it's got a glass floor too so you're like six feet over nothing oh boy way. i don't and know about all that i saw a video of a guy who was just he was walking with the camera pointing straight down and i thought it was fake at first but no it's a real deal i don't oh no i don't think so I would be the person that got in there. A butterfly would land on it, and it would shatter, and I'd fall to my death. Certainly. But, um, yeah, the Playboy Mansion, I believe, doesn't uh, really do that kind of stuff anymore. Well, Hef is, I believe, 91 years old now, Mm. and has actually sold the Playboy Mansion. It's sold about, within the past five to six years, I think, for about $100 million, and under, under the stipulation that Hef could live the rest of his life out in that house. And I could be wrong about this, or maybe I just misread it, but I thought I read online that it was bought out by, like, the Hostess brand, and that uh, they already own, like, the adjacent property, and that once they acquire the mansion, they're going to return it to its original state. Turn and, it into a big fe- big uh, cupcake uh, factory. <laughs> right. Join the uh, properties together. <laughs> I just think it would be a, uh, no matter who owns it, I think it would be a good idea to turn it into a museum. Yeah. it would. Ha- you'd have to do that, something like that. With it being... Such a big, big, big part of history. For so long, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there are the clubs and resorts and all that stuff are gone now. We have the magazine still. But um, just a museum dedicated to, uh, you know, the early days of Playboy. I think that would be amazing. They would all have the, the one, wing, one wing of the museum would have a curtain where only adults could go into and it would be full of the centerfolds throughout all the years. Oh, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) The the porn part of the video store. (laughs) (laughs) What else you got? Anything else? It's been a long time since we looked at Playboy, so it's hard to sit here and talk in length about it. But we don't need to because we got to, again, speak with Patty Farmer. And talking with her about her book, Playboy Laughs, the comedy comedians and comics of Playboy was just beyond educational. Yeah, it was. It was Um, awesome. It really was. It gives you a, uh, a new respect for Playboy. There's mm-hmm. that, that misconception out there that all Playboy stands for is smut and naked girls, and that's just not the case. So I always knew it wasn't the case, but then after talking to her and reading some of the book, finding out even more 
what happened behind the scenes and stuff. And how influential it was yeah. to um, like uh, stand-up comedy. That's and, a uh, huge thing. I had yeah. no idea. And even in her uh, past book, uh, Playboy Swings, one we didn't speak of, she talks about how uh, Playboy helped introduce like jazz music to clubs and stuff. And uh, I'll have to read that one, too, because that sounds pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's probably better explained from Patty herself. So let's just cut right over to our interview with Patty Farmer. All right, and now joining us on the show today, Patty Farmer, who is here to talk about her book, Playboy Laughs, the comedy, comedians, and cartoons of Playboy. Thanks so much for being with us today, Patty. Oh, thank you for inviting me. There's nothing better to do than talk about Playboy and chat with your listeners. I gotta say, you know, I uh, this has been very enlightening, researching, reading your book, and uh, doing further research. There's so much to Playboy that I was not aware of. Yes. Right, and and you all are in the business to know, and I'm a, I'm a historian, and that's how I really got pulled into writing about Playboy. Is a lot of the other greats uh, for other books kept saying, you know, well, I got my start at Playboy, or sitting down with Joan Rivers, she would say, you know, I was at Playboy as part of a trio, and and I'd be like what? A trio? Joan Rivers? And she said, no, Playboy gave me a stage and, you know, I figured out, you know, how to do stand-up. So I totally agree with you. There's a lot there that that we didn't know about. I think we need to educate our listeners today. Seriously, then, right? yeah. Well, let's start with uh, first the just the comedy aspect. And in your book, Playboy Laughs, you say that uh, Playboy was very important part in ushering in stand-up comedy, correct? Right. I, I really think they served as almost the bridge between the, the nightclubs, which were closing down and, and going out of style, and then the later comedy clubs, you know, the comedy club and the improv. So this was the bridge, and it was unique in the way that uh, nobody else, there was never another nightclub uh, that had so many different clubs in different cities. You know, at the height right. of their... Uh, success. They had like 42 clubs around the world, and the comics could go from club to club to club and, you know, perfect their act until they were good enough to move up to the next level. Or there were many comedians that just worked at Playboy for many, many years, and we never heard about them, but they were still an intricate part of the stand-up history. Now, you had mentioned just a little bit ago, you had uh, spoke with Joan Rivers, and I had uh, read that you had said one of the things she said was, Playboy was a place to be bad. Also reading, you see that Hef wanted these clubs to be family-friendly as well, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. So Absolutely. By being bad, she wasn't necessarily like saying curse words or talking filthy material, but more so like stretching her wings or learning the craft, rather. You're absolutely right, Jeremy. She meant that she could practice in front of a live audience, and and she wasn't, you know, terrific in the very beginning. And there are some stories in my books that other people commented on, um, really how she started out and learned her timing, and it's it's pretty funny. You know, everybody starts somewhere, and you have to learn. And that was a good place to be bad. You know, you could be your timing could be off your punchlines could be off and you worked at it you got instant feedback from the audience and at a a playboy club they worked you 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 did you know 
two, three, four, sometimes five shows a, a night, depending on the size of the club and the crowd of that day. So you've got to really work at, at your jokes and your punchline, et cetera. It's just uh, really amazing to hear, you know, read all the comedians that you say got their start uh, through the Playboy clubs. And again, going back to that misconception, I think a lot of people who didn't, you know, weren't aware of the Playboy clubs are probably thinking, well, maybe there's a nude aspect in there. Maybe it's like a strip club Mm -hmm. or something, but not the case at all. It was a uh, very high class kind of establishment, right? Right, absolutely. Uh, Hef wanted uh, guys to be able to come in for their three martini lunches and do their business deals, and then they wanted them to be able to come back at night and bring their girlfriends and their wives. So uh, there were a lot of comedians that, again, played during their early years, like George Carlin, you know, when he was still very collegiate looking and with a tie and a sweater, and... uh, he and Hef became good friends, you know, but at some point when he moved up to the seven words you couldn't say on TV, you know, Hef said, I love you, you're a good friend, I'll come watch your shows, but they're going to be at other clubs, you just can't uh, perform that, you know, perform your show in front of my audience anymore. And the same with Lenny Bruce and uh, Richard Pryor and Red Fox, and they all, you know, at one time performed at Playboy, And the funny thing is, even after Hef said, you know, congratulations, you're moving on up, uh, they still came back to the Playboy Club to have dinner and to watch the other comedians because it was the cool, hip place to be. Right. And one thing I read in your book was a was a quote from uh, Jerry Pollack, who uh, talks about being promoted to captain and uh, other people asking him, you know, how do you get this job? And him saying... The trick is not in getting the job, it's in keeping the job, which would kind of uh, insinuate to a strict environment. But at the same time, the employees had a blast working there, from uh, what I understand. And those aren't two things you typically see next to each other, a strict environment while having a great time. Absolutely. And uh, Jerry Pollack, he worked, uh, he was a maitre d' and he worked his way up uh, to that position. And he loved working there, and they were very strict. You know, Hef and crew had rules and regulations for absolutely every aspect of of running the clubs and, you know, running the magazine and running the TV shows also, but especially the clubs. You know, the bunnies had an actual book of conduct that they had to follow, you know, how to bend, how to serve, you know, how long you could uh, take talking to a customer. And when I first did the research and saw that, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, how how regimented. It must have been terrible. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, don't you think? But talking to the bunnies, they said it was great. You know, they knew exactly what to do. They they didn't have to wonder if they were uh, putting a wrong step forward. And they also had uh, protections built in to keep them from uncomfortable positions. And the comedians also, they had a list of, you know, what they could do and what they couldn't do and how they had to appear. They had to wear suits. You know, the guys had to wear suits. The girls had to look nice and, you know, have makeup on and look professional. So they, you know, had a very, very strict standards set of standards. And there was a room manager that actually graded them and said whether they were funny or not. You know, they, if they 
were slipping, you know, they might have to take a few weeks off and not be able to go on the circuit to, you know, the next club in Cincinnati or Des Moines or wherever. So it was Hef strove for a high-class club in everything that he did, the food, the entertainment, uh, the decorum. So uh, it, it was mandated. Man, I would love to have gone to one of those. And I always thought most comedians started, like, at the improv, standing in right. front of the big brick wall, but instead it was yeah. the Playboy right. Clubs. Isn't that crazy? And, and yeah. I would never thought. It, it really is. And names, like, uh, that you would have thought were the improv days, you know, like uh, Billy Crystal and uh, Steve Martin and Jimmy Walker, David Brenner, they were all at the Playboy Club before... The comedy clubs were big, and and Jimmy Walker told me he said um, he said they were we were talking about how strict they were, and he said you know it was great you got a paycheck where some of the other clubs you got a part of the door or you passed the hat for tips and you were lucky if the hat came back, but uh, he said a drawback was you had to get up there and wear a suit and tie, and at that time you know the David Letterman's and uh, you know. All these folks, they weren't so hot on, on wearing jackets and ties. So it, it was a, a trade-off. Another thing I uh, was unaware of when starting this research was the fact that there were also Playboy resorts. And I would imagine that have probably uh, held those in the exact same manner in class. Definitely. He wanted them to be an escape from the cities. Uh, one was outside Chicago and outside New York. And he dreamed that people would want to get away from the city for a weekend and drive up to Great Gorge or Lake Geneva and take part of these great resort grounds. There were lakes, you could go fishing, you could go horseback riding. Uh, Lake Geneva had its own runway. If you were so inclined, you could take a plane and land on their runway, although mm. mainly that was Hef and his big bunny that, that used the runway. But... Um, <laughs> You know, they didn't really catch on that much. I think that was the one thing that Hef didn't really count on not working. He put a ton of money in there and just kept pouring money in. He got big entertainment, you know, with people that would not perform for the standard Playboy fees, you know, guys like Shecky Green and Ann Margaret and of big, big names, and they commanded big salaries. You know, the the Shecky Greens and Don Rickles and uh, Milton Burles, all these big names would come out, and uh, it still didn't draw the crowd. So it was a financial drain, actually. And I'd also uh, read that he bought all these properties rather than leased them, which probably worked against uh, the success as well. Definitely, and it went against the trend of the time. Even the big hotel chains, they were just leasing property and leasing buildings. But Hef liked to have control of everything, and he thought that meant owning it. So that was a, one of his only poor business decisions. Right. <laughs> a little bit of a learning curve on that one. Sure. <laughs> yeah, an expensive one. Yeah. Out of all the good decisions you make, you're allowed to have a few yeah. in there, right? <laughs> I guess. Don't hit, I guess. Now, Patty, in, in writing this book and the book that came before it, Playboy Swings, uh, you've talked to so many people and done some crazy amounts of research. Um, I'm just kind of curious, and the people you've spoke with, I mean, like David Brenner, Tony Bennett, Jerry Van Dyke, Joan Rivers, and the list goes on. Do you have any stories or uh, you know moments that stand out with any of these people? 
Oh, my gosh. You know, it was hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds of people that I sat down and talked to. And, you know, they were all amazing. But I think a lot of the ladies were uh, the most interesting to me because we didn't have a lot of them. You know, of course, Phyllis had gone by the time I wrote the book, but I did a lot of research on Phyllis Diller. Uh, So I found her career amazing and her interaction with Playboy. And, of course, Joan Rivers, Lily Tomlin, Kay Ballard, Todi Fields, you know, all these uh, groundbreaking women comics, stand-up comedians. I thought they were, you know, just different, different and very unusual and you know, just that the big names not only got their start there, but they kept coming back. You know, not only the comedians, but people like you mentioned, like Tony Bennett. He played there at the height of his career. Nat King Cole appeared on the TV shows at the height of his career. Uh, you know, all the great uh, comedians, the sick comedians like Mort Saul and uh, uh, Lenny Bruce, you know, they were all there. Uh, but there was a mystique and a, a gravitating pull about Playboy that made people come back and even work the clubs for the $400 a week they were getting, wow. which is what Tony Bennett did. I mean, they, a lot of them over and over and over again. It was really uh, eye-opening and amazing to me. I can't imagine all the greats yeah. you spoke with and, uh, yeah, the stories they put together. So when you when you say that the women really stand out and they're just unique and different, I mean, was their perspective on Playboy, I mean, though positive, somehow varying from uh, what the gentlemen were saying? No, it, it pretty much mirrored it. But I think they had a harder time because it was a, a road not traveled. You know, they didn't have any blueprints. I think, you know, Phyllis was – Phyllis Diller was probably the first – a uh, woman stand up with uh, the audience and the the showmanship that people followed. You know, Joan Rivers followed her, and uh, all these other people. Just uh, they were winging it. Where you know there have always been comedians, stand up comedians, more or less. Uh, you know, and the guys had their own network. You know, they'd hang out together, whether it was New York or L.A. and uh, you know, the Rodney Dangerfields and Jackie Gales, they'd they'd have lunch and they'd have breakfast and they'd hang out together. But the girls, you know, they didn't they didn't have that network because nobody had really come before them. Uh, you had mentioned Nat King Cole earlier being on the Playboy television show. And um, I heard you say that what a big deal that was and that it drove the networks and the sponsors crazy and how Hef doesn't really get credited for uh, really working against racial barriers Absolutely. that were in place. He, uh, he's been given credit by a lot of our uh, black performers for helping them break the color barriers. Uh, Dick Gregory, Nat King Cole. Uh, you mentioned Nat King Cole being on his TV show and you have to remember it was 1959, and we look back on it and we say, what was the big deal? Well, the big deal was Nat King Cole was on a national TV show. He came out, he talked to Hugh Hefner, he did not perform, and he went and sat on a couch with a white woman who had come out with a book, Rona Jaffe, and they talked about literature. And the next day, you know, the world world at Playboy exploded with the sponsors threatening to pull advertising networks, threatening to pull uh, pull the show. 
because you just we were working in segregated America. It was mm-hmm. 1954. Civil rights didn't come into effect until 64, and you know that's mind blowing to me. I mean, with the comedians, Dick Gregory, the same thing. Uh, he got hired at the Playboy Club, and his first job there was in front of an all-white audience. And not only that, it was an all-white audience of meat packers or meat something, meat manufacturers from Alabama. So um, he had his work cut out for (laughs) him. Tough crowd, yeah. You know, it was was precedent-setting because they would not let him off the stage. In the very beginning when he walked out, they were shocked, and they even commented. They said, you know, we're here from Alabama, you know, almost like, you know, why are you here and when's the white guy coming out? You know, and Dick just went with it. He made a joke out of it. And uh, if you know Dick Gregory's humor, he's funnier than heck. (laughs) <laughs> and a little, you know, he can throw it back with the best of them. Uh, and at one point, after about two hours, Victor Lounge went over to the mansion where Hef was hanging out and said, you know, you have to get in the car and go over to the club because you have to see this. And he was still on stage when they came back. And I'm sure you guys are well aware that, you know, give a comedian an audience and he'll never leave the stage. <laughs> and these guys just you know, they wanted to hear more. They were they were rolling in the aisles. So, but Dick Gregory got his star on the Walk of Fame a few years ago, and one of the first things he said was, "I credit Hugh Hefner for helping to break the color barrier and giving me the chance to be here today." And even I've told that story many times, and I still get chills thinking about, you know, somebody helping to break the color barrier that. It was so unusual for a black man to be in front of a white audience. But Hef did it over and over again on his TV shows with the Jazz Festival, for sure. He integrated the audience and the stage, and it just hadn't been done before. And I know I'm getting long-winded, but I think Hef did it just... He was just colorblind, and you've heard that expression, but it's it's true. He was one of the colorblind people. He never said, well, you know, we'll make this big statement, and it'll be great publicity. No. He was always shocked when there was blowback because, like Dick Gregory told me, Hef only really cared if you could sing, dance, or, you know, blow a tune. Uh, and he hired the best person. He never looked at whether you were a man or a woman or black or white. And uh, it, it was very, very humbling to, to meet Hef and realize how much he contributed to helping break the color barriers. It was all about the show. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And it's crazy to think that it really wasn't all that long ago. Uh, yeah, that, really. That's how, uh, that's how the world was, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, people like Hef doing what he did, getting us to where we are today. We've come so far. We have. We have. And we live in crazy times right now. It seems like, uh, you know, are we going backwards, forward, sideways? I don't know. So it's truth. refreshing <laughs> uh, when you see somebody like Hugh Hefner that just believed in 
the First Amendment. He's a very simple man. Hef is a certifiable genius, but he has his beliefs. He knows what he believes in, and it doesn't waver. He believes in the First Amendment, freedom of speech, and, you know, pretty girls, and that's pretty much it, you know, <laughs> and a good show. Now, another thing I want to touch on are the cartoons. Growing up, uh, I mean, I'm going to sit here and say we both have looked at Playboys, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Part of becoming oh, a man, I you think. you boys surprised <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, one common thing or a common joke around the Playboy magazine is, oh, I read for the articles. Yeah, but, always. You know, when I was looking at those, I, I did look through the articles, mm-hmm. and I did look at the cartoons, many of them. So very funny and uh, very memorable. At that, I mean, the artwork was, uh, some of it was just, just that, like really good art. And uh, in reading your book, I come to find out that like Leroy Neiman and like Shel Silverstein were doing uh, cartoons for Playboy. Absolutely. And, you know, today Leroy's work hangs in museums around the world, but back in the late 50s and 60s, as long as he could. He drew cartoons for Playboy and hung out at the offices and looked at pretty girls and was one of the cartoonists. And and a lot of the other greats, you know, like Jack Cole from Plastic Man and, uh, uh, oh gosh, Arnie Roth and Al Jaffe, you know, all the Mad Men magazine crew, all the Mad Magazine crew, but they right. were Mad Men, too. Um, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> well, you know, that was Heff's genius. He got the very best people uh, for the magazine, it, whether it was cartoonists or whatever. And then I'm, I'm sure you guys know he was just a micromanager. So um, it was a very funny process. You know, you'd have some great guy, like whether it was an illustrator or a cartoonist, you know, Take Vargas, you know, Roberta Vargas and the Vargas girls. He'd uh, get an assignment and he'd draw the girl. He'd put it in an envelope from L.A., send it to Chicago. Hef would look at it and he'd draw his little editing notes. And he was very particular, you know, her eyes should be a millimeter closer, her, you know, breast should be tilted up and not down. And then he'd put it back in an envelope and send it to Vargas out in L.A., and it would go on and on every single month to get this magazine out. Very funny. And Al Roth, again, a great cartoonist, one of the greats, uh, he told some funny, funny stories in Playboy Laughs about the whole process. it was it was a lot of work, but it sounds like those boys had a lot of fun, too. The attention to detail is just what astounded me more than anything. Yeah, okay, to pick the artist to do cartoons for my magazine, but to then oversee it down to the last detail. In your book here, you have uh, one of the letters that uh, Hugh wrote, and uh, just at the very end where he says it should have a very Norman Rockwell feel. When I read that, it like something in me stirred because I remember cartoons with that look and even yeah. thinking yeah. that. It's, it just seeing it come full circle was incredible. Now, and you also said that uh, before the days of Playboy, Hef had actually aspired in being a comic artist. Right. You know, and how the world would have been different. You know, Hef grew yeah. up wanting to make his living as a cartoonist, where a lot of people in those days, that's how they made their living. And uh, he drew, he submitted to magazines, and unsuccessfully for the most part. And at one point, 1951, he came out, somebody produced a 
full 74-page comic book of his work, um, and it, it went nowhere. He was good, but just not good enough to compete with the other guys of those days. And that's when he turned his, his focus towards putting out a beautiful men's magazine and building a Playboy empire. You know, how nice that he had that choice. Gee, I can't be a cartoonist. I guess I'll, I guess I'll create an empire. Oh, so. <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, it's funny because I uh, got online and I, uh, the book that was published of his uh, early works was at that Toddlin Town, I believe. Right. I mean, it's uh, like some ridiculously long title, that Toddlin Town, uh, Rowdy Burlesque of Chicago, Manners and Morals, Mores. One, I think I'm going to have to find myself a copy of this just to have on the shelf in the studio <laughs> here. But um, two, when looking at the artwork in it, a lot of it was comparable to what I had seen in Playboy magazine. So did he not, you know, not only outsource some of these great artists, but was he putting his own work in the book at the same time? Very observant of you, Jeremy. Absolutely, he was. He did some of his own cartoons for the magazine. Definitely. That's incredible. That's very cool. Now, I, I just have to ask, because you just mentioned, and I've seen pictures, that you have got to meet Hugh Hefner. What can you say about him? What's it, what's it like to meet him in person? What's he like? You know, it's amazing, because... I know the history. You know, I'm a historian and a, a, a researcher, so I know. I know that he's a genius, that, uh, you know, he not only created this great magazine, but he did all these innovative business practices before anyone else, before President Trump ever slapped his name on a building. You know, there was Playboy branding, you know, so half-branded. He franchised. He perfected cross-marketing. And I knew all of these things. And then to sit down with him and talk to him, whether it's about jazz or stand-up, and to be invited to his home to kick back with a bunch of friends and watch a movie, you know, I just felt so honored to sit there and uh, be with he Hugh Hefner. He, he was a pioneer in so many ways. You know, and uh, when I talk around the country and around the world, the first thing I say is, what do you think of when you hear the word playboy? And, of course, people shout out, you know, bunnies and centerfolds. But there is so much more. And uh, he, he, was, he changed our culture. There really is so much more, and uh, there's more in this book for me to read. I can't wait. August 3rd, it's coming out, everybody. Uh, uh, Playboy Laughs, the comedy, comedians, and cartoons of Playboy. And I'm sure it's going to be available on your website, patty-farmer.com. Is there anywhere else that uh, people can get this book? Absolutely. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, anywhere books are sold. And if you walk into a bookstore and it's not there, ask them why. <laughs> a very good question indeed. Now, this book is the second, which is in a trilogy, a Playboy book trilogy. And the next one is going to be Playboy Thinks. What are you going to be encompassing in that book? The actual writing. You know, once again, Hefner's genius comes through. He hired the very best uh, authors like Ian Fleming. Uh, he wrote seven short stories for Playboy before they were picked up by the movies and made into On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Diamonds Are Forever, etc. People like Alex Haley before he wrote Roots. You know, he had writers of that caliber, uh, the interviews, the editors, the uh, the actual writers. Uh, writers and thinkers. 
Well, that'll be cool. You'll have to let us know when that's uh, going to happen. We'll get you back on the show and talk about that one as well. Um, Absolutely. Just one more question for you, Patty. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what is it about Playboy that makes you want to do all this research and write these books? Why Playboy? Uh, it's the decades of entertainment, and for some reason, no one else has done it. There are books going back decades about the the mansion, Hugh Hefner's lifestyle, uh, the clubs, or not the clubs, uh, but but all these books about you know the girls next door and this and that, uh, even books about the golf tournaments, but nothing about the great entertainers and uh, great entertainment that the Empire, uh, the Playboy organization, uh, helped launch and helped keep alive, keep the comedy alive. That's you know, Bill awesome. Marks wrote the foreword for my book, and uh, he said his father would have loved to have played there. If he, he was around, his father and his uncles, the Marks brothers, would definitely have been there. <laughs> oh, man, I, would, I wish he could have gone. Yeah, yeah, how cool it would have been. Well, Patty, once again, I want to thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Gentlemen, thank you so much for helping me get the word out. And I'm sorry if I talk too much, but there's no, so much not to at say all. about Playboy, and I love it. We can listen to you all day. Oh, you guys are the best. Thank you. All right, everyone. And there you have it, our interview with author Patty Farmer and about her book, Playboy Laughs, the comedy comedians and cartoons of Playboy. I want to thank Patty's publicist for sending us an advanced copy of the book to check out and read. It was really cool, and I can't wait to read further. But uh, if you want to grab a copy for yourself, you can go to patty-farmer.com. I'm sure she's going to have it for sale on there, and we're going to have a link on our website, candarepodcast.com, where you'll be able to follow and purchase the book. I'm sure it'll be like on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Amazon. I think I saw pre-order options for. so And um, probably even in your local bookstore. So... Lots of different places to uh, check out Patty. Again, go to patty-farmer.com to find out more about Playboy Laughs and uh, Patty's other books. And you can find Patty on Twitter at Patty at the Plaza. We've learned so much doing this episode. It's crazy. I had no idea about three quarters of all of this stuff. Uh, yeah. So uh, this has just been a treat. I want to thank Patty again. But I think that's going to do it for this week. So, Jack, what do we have on the website? Go to cannedairpodcast.com where you can check out our special guests, listen to the show, follow us on all our social media, visit the Hall of Heroes, see the Wall of Justice, check out our YouTube page, click on that merch button and buy some shirts and cups and pillows and iPhone cases now. And if you have any comment, complaint, or want to give us a pat on the back, send us an email on our contacts page. And again, don't forget to find us on Twitter at CandarPod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air and on our YouTube page. Uh, lots of videos to watch on there. Again, to our, our listeners going to the Wizard World conventions, uh, we have Columbus, August 4th, 5th, and 6th. Chicago, August 24th through the 27th. And Nashville, September 8th through the 10th. If you're going to be buying tickets, go to wizardworld.com and at checkout in the promo box, type Candare, no no caps, no spaces, just Candare, and you're going to get that cool Candare bump, 10% off. And head to society6.com forward slash Pod, or just go to our website and click the merch button mm-hmm. to get some tasty Candare merch. We got mugs, we got t-shirts, we got phone cases, we got shower curtains. <laughs> we got everything your little heart could desire, so head over that way and show your love. Is that it? That's it for this show. All right. So until next time, I'm Jeremy Colley. And I'm Jack Dord. Thanks for listening, everyone.
house is on fire. I need to get help. Do it from outside. Blowtorch. Whenever there's a fire in your house, be sure to get outside immediately. And once outside, get on CandarePodcast.com. Well, thanks for the tip, Blowtorch, but just one question. What about the fire? And no one is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotus, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.